sharing with us on courage. And if you haven't had an opportunity to see that message, you can see it on our church uh, website. And uh, I would encourage you to take time, make time to, to watch and listen to that particular message. And I appreciate Tom and his willingness to, uh, to share with us. I know it's not an easy thing to do for anyone, but someone who's having to overcome the things that he's dealing with, it's even more difficult. Well, successful leadership. Uh, we have learned that Jesus is the greatest leader ever in world history. You say, well, how do you measure that? Well, first of all, no human being has had more followers than Jesus. Would you agree to that? And then no one has had a greater influence on the world for good than Jesus has. And then no one has been honored more than Jesus. And certainly even this morning as we gather together, we're gathering together with millions of other people this morning who are honoring Jesus by gathering together and singing worship songs to him even as we have this morning. Certainly we're all leaders. And if you want to learn what a successful leader looks like, whatever your role of leadership might be, then uh, I don't know a better place to start than to learn from the greatest leader in world history, Jesus Christ. Thus far, we've learned some things about Jesus that made him such a successful leader and such a great leader. And the first week we learned he was a servant leader. What that meant was is that we know Jesus was and is God. And as God, he has unlimited power. He has unlimited resources and he has unlimited knowledge but instead of using all of those unlimited things to serve himself he used those unlimited things to serve others instead of using his power resources and knowledge to serve himself he used these things to serve others to serve you and that's what a servant leader does they use their power their knowledge their resources to serve other people and to make other people successful. And so he was a servant leader. Uh, Paul said he emptied himself to make others successful, to make us successful. He sacrificed himself to serve the needs of others. So that was week one. And then we learned that he was a forgiving leader, that he wasn't into just judgment based upon what's right and wrong and then... Uh, passing sentence on people. No, he wanted, he was a leader who forgave and who uh, restored people. And we looked at a particular story in the New Testament where Jesus uh, forgave a woman who was caught in adultery, the very act. And his goal wasn't to stone her like everyone else's goal was that was condemning her. His goal was to forgive her and to restore her. For her to experience a new kind of life that she didn't know. So Jesus was a forgiving leader. Then last week Tom shared with us that Jesus was a courageous leader. And I especially uh, was blessed by how Tom talked about how it took courage at, uh, to do certain things that are very ordinary. Like getting out of bed in the morning. For some folks it takes courage just to get up and face the day. And so we all need to become courageous leaders like Jesus if we're going to be the kind of leader that God desires. And this morning, I want us to spend a few minutes talking about Jesus being a faithful leader. 
And that's what we've been singing about this morning. Jesus was a faithful leader. Now, one word that's used frequently in the scripture to describe God is the word faithful. I haven't counted up the number of times that it's used in the scripture to describe God, but it's one of the most uh, popular words or prominent words in all of the Bible to describe God. He is faithful. And the first time that you can find that word used is in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 9. And I want to read this verse to you. You can follow along there on your, in your Bible. And I want to talk about this particular verse for just a few minutes before we look specifically about how Jesus is an example of this verse. So in Deuteronomy 7, 9, it says this. And this is Moses who wrote the book of Deuteronomy speaking about God. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit... Moses said, therefore, know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God. There you have it. The faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. Now, I want us to look at a few words in this particular verse. And so please bear with me. This will help you understand what it means for Jesus to be faithful as we talk about him as a leader. And the first word that I want us to look at is the word faithful. This word faithful that's used in this verse comes from a Hebrew word. It's a primitive root word. And what it means is, is that it means to build up or support. Think about that. God is faithful. The word means to build up or support. Do you know that you cannot build anything successfully without faithful people? And so the word means to build up or to support. It means uh, a common usage is it means to be trustworthy. It means to be reliable. It means to be dependable. It means to be morally uh, true or certain. In other words, uh, to be faithful is to be a person that you know is going to do the right thing because they have a habit of doing the right thing. They are faithful. In this verse, Moses described God as faithful, and he said very specifically, look at the verse. It says that faithful God, he said, who keeps covenant. Covenant. Another word I want you to understand besides faithful is the word, uh, this word, keep. And the word keep comes from a Hebrew word, which is also a primitive root. And it means to hedge about, as with thorns. In other words, to keep something is to protect something. If I asked you to keep my watch, you would say, okay, if you agreed to keep it, it meant that you were going to keep it in good standing. You were going to keep it safe. You were going to guard it if I asked you to keep my watch. And so the word keep means to hedge about as with thorns. It means to guard. It means to protect. It means to attend to. And so God is faithful because he keeps. But what does he keep in this verse? It says that he keeps covenant. And that's another word that I want us to look at for just a moment. The word covenant comes from the Hebrew word barith. And what it is, is a covenant is a commitment. It is an obligation of yourself to perform something for someone else. That's what a covenant is. 
And the word picture for the Hebrew word berith or covenant was to pass, uh, if you want a word picture for that particular word, it, was a, it meant to pass between two pieces of flesh that were offered as a sacrifice. That is the word picture for the word covenant. Now what this symbolized was that the commitment that was being made, the agreement that was being made, was a blood covenant, or it was a commitment that a person was saying, I will die to keep this commitment. I will die to keep this agreement that I'm making. That's the word covenant. When two parties entered into a berith or a covenant, they formed what was called a union or a confederacy or a pact. And any covenant that was made between two people would have terms. In other words, if it was a one-way covenant that I was making, let's say I make a covenant with my children. And the covenant I make with my children is, is that until you're 18 years old, I agree as your father to provide for your physical and spiritual and mental needs. Well, that's a one-way agreement. And I made that agreement with God and with my children when I started having children that I would be a father who would provide for their physical and their mental and their spiritual needs. Well, what did they agree to do back with me? Well, I want you to know they agreed to do nothing. It was a one-way agreement. And I made the agreement with God, and I made the agreement on their behalf, but my children did not make any agreement with me. If you want to go talk to them today and encourage them to enter into an agreement with me, I would encourage you to do that on my behalf. <laughs> and so, but when two people enter into an agreement or enter into a covenant both of them are making commitments to the other. And the covenant would have these terms. And these terms would be there because the covenant could be broken. And if one party broke the agreement, then the innocent party was released from the obligation of keeping the covenant. Well, in Deuteronomy 7, 9, Moses said God is faithful because he keeps covenant and notice that it adds the word mercy there. I think that's a very important word that's added in this particular verse. And this particular word mercy is there because here's what you need to know about God and his commitment to do what he said he will do. He is very long-suffering. In other words, I know people that will enter into an agreement and when the other person fails to keep their part of the agreement, they're done. There's no mercy there. They're not, I would say they're not kind. And I want you to know something. When it comes to marriage, if you enter into marriage with that attitude, you're not going to have a very good marriage. You've got to enter into marriage with making a covenant or a commitment as a husband or a wife to this covenant, but you also need to commit to mercy. People ask me, why was your marriage to Debbie so successful? And I say, we showed each other a lot of grace. And if you ask me why my marriage to Sandra is so successful, I would say, 
Well, yeah, we've made covenant with each other, but the truth is we show each other a lot of grace. We show each other a lot of mercy. And so Moses is saying that's the way God is. And aren't you grateful that he is? That he is a covenant-keeping God who is also committed to keep mercy. In the Old Testament, God made a number of covenants with men. And it all started out in the beginning of creation, before the fall of man. We had this covenant that God made with Adam and Eve in, in the Garden of Eden before the fall of man. And it was an incredible covenant that God made with them. They were the keepers of the garden, and God created them to rule over the world. Amazing, isn't it? That God would enter into that kind of agreement with mankind based upon what we know about mankind. Well, that was before the, the fall of man. After you have, after the fall of man, you have the Adamic covenant. And with that comes the curses of mankind because of our sin. And I want you to understand that that was an agreement that God made. The wages of sin is death. That was a part of God's agreement and that he made or commitment he made to mankind because of man's sin. Then you have the Noahic covenant that God made with Noah and I won't go into detail about that one and then you have the Abrahamic covenant that God made with Abraham and you know God promised Abraham the covenant he made with Abraham Abraham would be the father of many nations not just one nation but there were special blessings that were going to accompany the covenant that God made with one particular descendant of Abraham and so then we have the Mosaic covenant and that's really the extension of the Abrahamic covenant with, uh, when God gave the laws of God to the nation of Israel coming through Jacob and Isaac, the descendants of Abraham. And then we have a covenant called the Davidic covenant. And what a great covenant it is uh, that God made with David that someone from his house would rule over Israel forever. I mean, what a covenant God made with David and then we have what is called the new covenant the new covenant that God has made with mankind and it is of all the covenants that are listed in the Bible this new covenant is the most important covenant in the Bible that God has made with mankind and I want to read a passage of scripture to you from Jeremiah chapter 31 beginning in verse 31 that gives us this particular covenant. Now, mind you, this is in the Old Testament, and it was written hundreds of years before Jesus arrived on the scene, what I'm about to read to you. And here's what God said. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. There it is. A new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah specifically. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. That was the covenant that God made with Moses. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. They broke the covenant even though he says I was a husband to them. Wow. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. And write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, why is that so important as a part of the new covenant? 
Well, because the covenant that God made with Israel through Moses was a covenant that had terms. And in the terms of the covenant, God did not have to fulfill what he promised to do and committed to do if Israel did not fulfill what they committed to do. And you know what they committed to do? They committed to obey the laws of God. And you know what they did? They broke that covenant. Over and over again, they violated its terms, and they experienced in themselves the consequences of breaking that covenant. And so if God is going to make a conditional covenant with mankind that is based upon keeping his commands, here's the good news of the new covenant. God says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. In other words, God was going to do something to a man and a woman that would cause them to keep his laws. Wow, now that is quite a commitment. He goes on to say, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive. This is part of the covenant again. I will forgive their iniquity. Iniquity is more than just uh, breaking or violating the law of God. Iniquity is when you intentionally and deliberately and with premeditation break the law of God. And God says, I'm even going to forgive their iniquities. Isn't that great news? And their sin, I will remember no more. So this sums up in Jeremiah chapter 31, the new covenant. In this covenant, God committed himself to forgive the Jews for their sins and to change their hearts so they would be committed to obey him. He also committed himself to create, in this passage of Scripture, a universal knowledge of him. He says, everyone. He says, every man teaches neighbor. <laughs> wow. And all flesh, it said, would come to know him. He also committed himself that what he was doing for the Jews would be extended to the rest of the world. Wow. This thing's getting serious, isn't it? This covenant. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, writing about seven to eight hundred years before the birth of Christ, said this, The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. He said, All flesh shall see the glory of the Lord, not just the Jews. In Isaiah 49, 6, Isaiah said this, Indeed, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. And to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles. Who's the Gentiles? That's all of us that aren't Jews. So this new covenant was going to be a light to the Gentiles through the Jews. That you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. In Joel chapter 2 and verse 28. And again another prophet writing hundreds of years before Jesus came. He said and it shall come to pass afterward. That I will pour out my spirit upon some flesh? No, upon all flesh. God promised he was going to pour out his spirit upon all flesh. And then he said, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days, I will pour out my 
Spirit. So this is the new covenant that God said he was going to institute. And the prophets of the Jews were looking forward to it happening. And the nation of Israel was, many of people were looking forward to this new covenant that this new commitment that God was going to make to not only the Jews, but to the people of the whole earth. Now, the prophets of the Jews in the Old Testament predicted that this new covenant would be established by a man who would be known as a Messiah. The word Messiah means Savior. And several of the prophets in the Old Testament said it would require this Messiah to suffer in order to atone for the sins of the world, for this new covenant to be established. Isaiah, for one, said it in Isaiah 53. He said this about the Messiah who was going to establish this new covenant. Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Couldn't be any clearer, could it? That for this new covenant to be enacted, God was going to have to act. And what God's action would be is that he was going to send a Messiah. And the suffering of this Messiah would atone for the sins of the world in order to make the fulfillment of this covenant possible with the whole world. Wow. Incredible plan. All based on covenant. Covenant. Well, we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, believe that Jesus was and is that Messiah. And we believe that for numerous reasons that I'm not going to go into today, but that's what we believe. And we believe that Jesus came and he instituted this new covenant. And as a part of letting his disciples know that he was fulfilling what the prophets had said about the Messiah starting a new covenant, Jesus instituted what we call the Lord's Supper, which we regularly take in our small groups, in our church. A time where Jesus said to his disciples, I'm I'm instituting the new covenant, by the way. The one you've been waiting on, I'm bringing it in. And here it is. uh, The only way it can be established is through my blood. And so the juice represents the blood, the suffering of Christ. Without the shedding of blood, the Bible says there's no remission or forgiveness of sin. And then he said with the bread, his body would be broken course that's how his blood was shed was by his body being broken or pierced and the bread represents the body of Jesus that instituted the new covenant for us all so Jesus instituted this new covenant 
I want to take a few minutes and just talk about what it took for Jesus as far as faithfulness in order to institute this new covenant. In fact, the record of Jesus being faithful and, and doing what he committed himself to do is absolutely astounding. Last week, Tom Hill talked about the courage that it took to do various things. And he gave various examples of what kind of courage it took to do certain things. I want you to know what Jesus did required more courage than any of us will ever be, uh, have to demonstrate in our entire lives. And it required more faithfulness. I mean, what he committed himself to do is astounding. And it's another reason that Jesus is the greatest leader in world history. Jesus is faithful. Let's talk about it for just a few minutes. First of all, Jesus was faithful in the commitments that he made to God the Father. I mean, his record of faithfulness begins before the world was created. 1 Peter 1.17 says, And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. But it was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. What this verse is telling us, and I'm not going to read John 1 to you, you can read about it in John 1 and several other places, is that before the world was created and founded, God the Father and God the Son reached an agreement. They have full knowledge of what's going to happen once creation of mankind takes place on the earth. They weren't surprised by man's rebellion whatsoever. And they hatched a plan before the world began for God the Son to atone for the sins of the world. And Jesus said, I will do it. Can you imagine that? He agreed before the foundation of the world. Knowing that man would fall, Jesus committed himself to a plan of redemption for all of mankind. He committed himself to become a man. Why would you do that? <laughs> you know, once you reach my age or Tom's age or Paul's age and you know and you've lost a lot of your strengths and a lot of your abilities... And, you know, you're not like you were when you're 30. It's pretty good being a man when you're 30, perhaps. But I want you to know at this stage in your life, you look at it and you appreciate the sacrifice Jesus did for becoming a man even more. Because you, you know what a sacrifice it was for him to take on humanity. Incredible sacrifice that he made. Not one time did Jesus waver from that plan, from the creation of mankind to that moment that he said on the cross, it is finished. Not one time did Jesus say and do anything that was not the will of his Father. He was faithful as a son. Jesus did what he agreed to do. He was faithful to the commitment that he made to God the Father. Not only was he 
faithful to the commitment that he made to God the Father, Jesus was faithful to his disciples. When they hatched this plan before the foundation of the world, as a part of the plan of redemption for the sins of mankind, Jesus also agreed to adopt 12 men to be his disciples. Doesn't that wow you? It wows me. You know what that would be like? It would be like me coming to you today and saying, I want to encourage you to adopt 12 foster children for the next three and a half years. In fact, as I said previously, the word faithful means to be like a parent or a nurse that's fostering children. Well, before the foundation of the world, Jesus agreed to become the foster parent to these 12 disciples for three and a half years. He was going to live with them as a part of the plan of redemption. In Luke 6, 13, Luke talked about the fulfillment of that plan. It says, And when it was day, Jesus called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose 12, whom he also named apostles. He was faithful to the plan of redemption with regards to his disciples. <clears throat> Discipleship, and I, you need to understand this. You know, we talk a lot about discipleship in our church and it being relational. Discipleship is agreeing to become a spiritual foster parent to others. That's what Jesus did. And so when we say we're going to do discipleship the way Jesus did it, we say be relational, we could also say I'm agreeing to become your spiritual foster parent. I'm going to take on that role. That's the commitment that I am making to you. And I want you to know, if you're not being a spiritual foster parent to others yet, God wants you to grow up in your faith and eventually become one. He wants you to mature into the image of Jesus and eventually become a spiritual foster parent to other people in your life. Well, that's what Jesus agreed to do. He became this spiritual foster parent. And you know what? He was faithful to them, wasn't he? In John 13, 1, at the very end of his ministry, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I can't think of a better thing to say about someone with their spiritual family. He loved them to the end. Even though he was Lord, he served these disciples. Jesus provided for their physical needs. Jesus taught them the truth about God and themselves. Jesus modeled for them how they should live. Not one time did Jesus neglect his disciples to fulfill his own selfish desires. Not one time was he disloyal to them, even though they were disloyal to him, weren't they? Not one time did he fail to give them the right guidance and direction. Not one time did he fail to be a model for them about how they should live. He lived it out in front of them. He was faithful to his disciples. Before his death, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus made specific promises to his disciples. He promised them that he would not leave them as orphans. He promised that he would send his Holy Spirit to be with them and in them. He promised them that they would receive power to complete the mission that he had given them, and Jesus fulfilled all of these promises to his disciples. 
every one of them, he was faithful to the commitment he made to his disciples. And then finally, he was faithful. He was faithful to his church. As a part of this incredible covenant and plan of redemption that God made with mankind through Jesus, Jesus also agreed that those who believed in him would be called his church. We didn't come up with that idea. God came up with that idea. Jesus first talked about it in Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus said, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know what the word church means? It simply means a calling out. The church is made up of those who have been called by God out of this world who have responded in agreement to that call that they've heard from Jesus Christ. That response that he calls for is a, a response of repentance of our rebellion against God and also a response of faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. That response is publicly demonstrated through baptism in water. And Jesus agreed to receive everyone who joined his church into his eternal kingdom. Those who came through repentance and faith and and through baptism. You know, there's no relationship in this world that faithfulness is more important to than marriage. The terms of marriage are, are these. When you get married... If you get married under God, here's the terms. One man to one woman. One flesh. One lifetime. These incredible terms can only be maintained by being faithful to the other person. You know, through various stories that Jesus told, Jesus called himself the bridegroom. And he called his church the bride. One example of that is Matthew 9, 15. And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? And Jesus is talking about himself being the bridegroom. And he's talking about his disciples being a part of the church. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. You know, his apostles picked up on this theme that Jesus compared himself to the groom and his church the bridegroom. And so the apostle Paul wrote this in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Jesus agreed with the Father that he would return to the earth for his bride after he prepared a place for his bride in heaven. In the interim, Jesus agreed to be faithful to his bride in the following ways. Jesus agreed to give his word to his bride, the church, and he did. Jesus agreed to give her his gifts, and he did. Jesus agreed to be with her by his spirit through the incredible storms of persecution that he knew that his bride was going to encounter, and he did. Jesus agreed to provide for the physical needs of his church and he did Jesus agreed to be faithful to his bride even when she has not been sure about his love for her uh, him and even though his bride would not be faithful to him and he did Paul said to Timothy if we are faithless he remains faithful he cannot deny himself Jesus agreed to never leave or forsake his bride isn't that incredible and he's been faithful 
to that promise now for over 2,000 years. Can you imagine getting engaged to be married? And people say, well, when are you going to get married? I don't know, sometime after 2,000 years. And you're going to be faithful all of that time to the one that you plan on marrying? Jesus has been faithful to the agreement that he made, and it's lasted for over 2,000 years. Jesus agreed to return to the earth for his bride. And then after the last judgment of the world and the wedding supper of the Lamb, Jesus agreed that he would be faithful to his bride for all of eternity. Jesus has done and will do everything for his church that he agreed to do. And here's the reason why. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 17 through 19 says, It's impossible for God to lie. And Jesus is God. He has never lied. Not one time has he broken a commitment that he has made. He has been faithful to the commitment that he has made to his father. He has been faithful to the commitment that he made to his disciples. And he's been faithful to the commitment that he's made to us, his church. No leader has ever lived has been more faithful to what he has agreed to do than Jesus Christ. There's one more reason why Jesus is the greatest leader in world history. There he is. He's our example. He's our model of what it means to be faithful to the commitments that we make to others. How are you doing? How are you doing? Will you be a faithful leader like Jesus? Following Jesus means we seek to imitate him. We seek to emulate him. In other words, when we make a commitment, we should be people, if we're following Jesus, that do everything in our power to keep that commitment. Do you want to become a leader like Jesus? You know, when I see this, I'm pretty well overwhelmed. In fact, as I learn these different lessons about Jesus Christ and what he was like as a leader, I look at them and as I really meditate on the truth of who God is and how God manifested himself through Jesus, it's like, you've got to be kidding. You've got to be kidding. How in the world could someone like me become a leader that is faithful like Jesus? Well, God made a way. We already saw it in the New Covenant. Listen, you can't be faithful in your own strength and power. It's impossible. The only way that you can be faithful to the commitments that you make to God and to others is through the strength and power that God would provide. And that New Covenant, God promised that he would bless people with power to keep their commitments. And to be faithful, to be courageous, to be forgiving, to be a servant leader. It's only by our union with the resurrection of Jesus and the spirit of Jesus that we can become a faithful leader like Jesus. So the first thing that has to happen to you if you're going to become a faithful leader is that you've got to receive Jesus for your salvation. You've got to trust in Jesus. You've got to repent of your rebellion against God. 
And you've got to put your hope and faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And he promises, if you'll do that, that he will send his spirit to unite with your spirit and you will experience the resurrection power of Jesus Christ in your soul and in your life. And he will enable you to keep commitments that you never thought you could make in your own power. So the first thing that has to happen is you've got to be saved. You've got to receive Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin. You've got to receive Jesus and his resurrection power through his spirit. Second thing that has to happen to become a faithful leader is you've got to surrender. You've got to surrender your purpose in life for his purpose in your life. His purpose in your life is, is not for you to get rich. His purpose in your life is not for you to be happy. His purpose for your life is not that you would have everything that you want or, or you know, just do everything that you could desire. His purpose for your life is that you would be like him, that you would reveal the glory of God to other people in your life. Well, for that to happen, you not only have to be saved, but you have to understand his purpose and come to a place where you surrender to his purpose in your life and say, Jesus, you know, I give up all of these things that I once wanted for this one thing. Let me glorify you with my life. You got to surrender to his purpose in your life. You know, when you surrender to that purpose, there's going to be commitments that you'll have to make to fulfill his purpose for your life. For example, you're going to need to pray. You're not going to glorify Jesus in your life if you don't spend time alone with God and pray and seek the Lord in prayer. You're going to have to read his word and meditate on his word in order to fulfill his purpose in your life. You're going to have to serve his church. I mean, he loves his church. He wants you to love his church with all of its warts and imperfections. He wants you to find a place to serve his church. And if you're going to fulfill his purpose for your life, you've got to serve his church. And then you've got to disciple others. Like we said, growing up into the image of Christ to come to a place where you go, yeah, I'll be a spiritual foster parent to that person. I'll take them in. I'll take them in. I'm going to spend time with them as best I can in order to help them grow and mature in their faith. I'm going to disciple others. There's some of you that will be called to full-time Christian service if you surrender to God's purpose for your life. Some of you will be called to preach like I was. Some of you will be called to be pastors. Some will be called to be evangelists. Some will be called to be missionaries. Surrender yourself to God's purpose for your life, and God will show you the commitments that he wants you to make one by one, and he will guide your life through those commitments. And then, if you're going to be successful as a leader and be faithful like Jesus, then you're going to have to surround yourself with the right people. He who walks with wise men becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. You surround yourself with people whose purpose is to follow Jesus. And I want you to know something about this one. You cannot ride the fence when it comes to surrounding yourself with the right people. If you try to ride the fence and you try to be like this group of people over here who's living in sin and then follow these people over, I want you to know you're going to fall off on the wrong side. You've got to surround yourself with people that love Jesus, who want to see God's purpose for their life fulfilled, and you've got to surround yourself means you need to be in contact with them every day. Encourage one another daily so you won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I mean, you need to surround yourself with the people of God that have surrendered themselves to the purpose of God. Salvation is a process of change that begins with your conversion to Christ, and it continues on for the rest of your life. That process is called sanctification. Set apart for God is what the word sanctification means. It is a process of growing in love, a process of growing in faith, 
It is a process that does not occur by you isolating yourself from the body of Christ. You've got to surround yourself with the body of Christ and with people is, whose purpose is to follow Jesus if you're going to become the kind of leader that Jesus is and wants you to be. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for being so faithful to us. We sang about it, now we've preached about it. And we just praise you, Lord, for who you are. And I pray for anyone here this morning, Lord, who hasn't received you for salvation, taking that first step. That first step, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit will bring them to that point of salvation. A willingness to repent of their rebellion against you, to receive you, and then to follow you in baptism. Lord, would you work in the hearts of anyone here who doesn't know you right now and bring them to yourself. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We're going to close our service today with some prayers. And uh, there's some folks we need to pray for. We met this morning in my office to pray for Audrey L. Woods. And we're going to pray for her again in the service. And so, Jerry, would you and Linda mind coming down here and standing in for your granddaughter this morning? And then we're going to pray for Nancy Holbert again today, who's still in the hospital at Baptist Hospital. And who would stand in for Nancy today? Who would do that? Come on up, Kim. Kim will stand in if anybody wants to pray for Nancy. You can go to Kim. If you want to pray for Audrey L., come to Jerry and Linda. And then we got our False Creek team going to False Creek this week. And if you're going to False Creek, I want you to come up for prayer and let's really dedicate this time to the Lord this morning. So, Britt, come on up here. And if uh, you're going to Falls Creek this week or you just want to pray with them about Falls Creek, you can come and join them in this prayer. Well, this prayer time is for anyone who has a need. These are just some of the needs we know about. And we want to give you an opportunity to receive prayer this morning. And so in just a moment, uh, Scott's going to begin to play. And as he begins to play, if you have a need for prayer would you just get up and come forward? Just stand apart from one of these groups that's already here. And we'll make sure that people come to pray with you this morning as we end this service. So let's stand together right now. If you need prayer, would you come on up? And I'll make sure that people come to you. If you need to receive Jesus and follow him in baptism this morning, here's what you need to do. You just come to me this morning. Say, I need to receive Jesus. And I need to follow